Hi, everybody. It's Casey. Um, Welcome to the Parent Teacher Podcast. Uh, This is a podcast for anybody who is interested in helping kids uh, become more independent and successful and feel good about school. Um, So parents, teachers, related service providers. Um, You can find out more on my website, reorientedadvocacy.com. I usually include a little more information than you'll find in the show notes there. And if you want to reach me, you can also leave a voice message here at Anchor FM. Um, with my guest, um, Kristen McShane. Um, Kristen is a learning specialist. Um, she does Orton-Gillingham approaches with, uh, with kids. That's how I've met her. Um, and she can be found at thelearningspecialistllc.com. Yeah. Um, so Kristen's here with me today. And it was a little bit... Uh, it was a, I think I've used that word before on here, synchronous, synchronicity, that I had just seen several articles popping up, mostly on Facebook, I say that a lot, on Facebook, um, talking about how we're teaching reading wrong, and it was uh, really resonating with me because I had been supervising um, student teachers in a special ed program, and was just surprised at how we've taught teachers to teach reading, so I've been thinking deeply about that. Um, so. Kristen's here with me today. Hi. Hi. I'll let you talk too. <laughs> sure. Um, and she's going to tell us a lot more about what is Orton-Gillingham instruction. Um, the other terms I think families are familiar with is Wilson reading uh-huh. instruction. Um, and so I asked her to come and teach us more about that. So, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Kristen, I guess um, start by telling me a little bit about your background and what led to the reading as a specialty. Sure. So I, excuse me, so I, my background is in elementary education. Um, I started as uh, an elementary educator and moved very quickly into um, being more interested in working with kids in the margins. So... I naturally went and got a double master's in special education and studied at the doctoral level. I was really interested in the research on high quality interventions for kids who learn in different ways. Um, And I'm really, really passionate about effective interventions that drive outcomes Mm. um, for learners that are often kind of marginalized in typical schooling situations. So, I just found like as I progressed through my career in education that I I have always been pulled to become more and more specialized because I find that, um, you know, even starting in teacher prep programs, especially when, um, especially in general education teacher prep programs, it almost like upon reflection, looking back, I sort of feel like while I was prepared, and I'm air quoting, um, it felt like one big survey level course where I just got a lot of information mm-hmm. in small doses um, and it as prepared as I was I was grossly underprepared at the same time and I know a lot of teachers feel that way um, and I found as I went through my career just this pull to deepen my understanding of atypical learners. Um, I think naturally I identify as being kind of quirky and I'm different. I'm not really a square peg in any way, shape or form. Um, And I'm also just a deeply analytical person. And so I think my brain naturally just kind of led led me to just down this like to make it my life's work um, to to figure out how atypical learners can learn. Yeah, um, I hear um, a need to uh, strategize, right? To be very strategic yeah. and effective. And I think a lot of teachers would agree with that. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanna kind of um, go back to what you said too. I think that I, I worked in a teacher prep program and it's just hard as heck to cover everything, um, and especially in especially in something as important as reading, because so many kids are identified as having a need because of reading skills, mm-hmm. especially early on. And I think as um, somebody who got my undergrad in as an 
LBS, which is learning behavior specialist, which is the four year degree, you just can't feel specialized in any one area. And so you're kind of, and I think a lot of teachers do this and I don't fault any of them, just trying to see what works. So this has been the problem that I think was identified in a lot of those articles is you may have had a professor who was passionate about the learning experience approach, you know, or, you know, having students write phonetically their stories or somebody who really latched on to the idea of, um, you know, read alouds and illustrating and, and the part that's missing is best practice Mm -hmm. and feeling effective Mm -hmm. in teaching. Mm -hmm. And so how did you find, and do you feel that you found an approach that is more effective? So I discovered, um, Orton Gillingham is what we're talking about today. Um, I discovered the Orton Gillingham method when I was a special education teacher in a school in the South side of Chicago, um, where the, um, need for high quality instruction was great. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was a resource teacher and using, had pulled small groups and individual students out. And I, for the first time as for the first time in my history as a reading instructor, um, saw explicit results mm-hmm. from the use of the method. And I, it just piqued my interest. And from then on, I was like hooked on the method, um, and pursued certification, which was, gosh, like a two year process between the, the training. I'd went through the Institute of Multisensory Education, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, <clears throat> we should talk, delve into multisensory and all that too, but um, I'm a huge fan of, I'm glad that I originated with the Orton-Gillingham method itself because, because of the emphasis that it puts on multisensory aspects of the approach. Can you explain, I guess, what that looks like? Because even I have a hard time picturing it. I've seen it done. And the other, the other thing I always wonder is sometimes we see things marketed. I'm going to use the word marketed or like promoted in schools. Uh And I always wonder, like you said, this was a two year training program, like to get certified. So you already have a degree in education. You're Mm -hmm. already, you know, certified to be in the classroom. And then it's an additional two years yeah. of training and what I've seen can happen is um, in other interventions and I think it's important to bring this up in the context of this episode because the alternative to structured programs like Orton Gillingham are reading intervention programs where teachers get very little training yes. they get very little training and so what I'll see is you know tons of resources tons of leveled readers tons of types of assessments that they can use mm-hmm. various skills they can be addressing and they're kind of just picking their favorite like, yep. oh, that none of the kids like this story. So we do it completely out of sequence. Yep. And I'll be like, well, what, what vocabulary? Wait, are, what kind of words are you doing? Are you doing words with like, like, you know, phonetic patterns? Mm-hmm. Or, oh, no, no, they're just the words from the story. And so I've seen really good programs go down the tubes because they're not done with fidelity because yes. of the lack of training. Well, lack of training too. And then the constraints of time and the right. structure and the schooling. So when I, I mean, I, I'm a one-on-one interventionist. So I... <clears throat> to throw any educator that's still working in a school system a boatload of credit, I don't deal with a lot of the ties that they do. So I mm-hmm. have the, um, you know, I have the space and time to take the space and time that's needed to get properly certified, prepare, you know, for these lessons in as much time as I need. Mm-hmm. I can structure them as they need parents. I recommend to parents, you know, your child needs two sessions a week or they need a minimum of three sessions a week and it's all one-on-one, it's right. all customized. So, and yeah, the fee- I think we're talking about the feasibility of it happening in a school setting. Right, and I guess to, yeah, bring it back, I said, I, I do that, right? I, like, go off track. But what I was saying is I've heard multisensory and I'm sure. thinking of even thinking, um, like, the thing where, you know, kids used to tap on the arm as they went down or I've seen Orton-Gillingham materials uh-huh. being used in classrooms. And I'm not sure that I was seeing the actual approach. So yep. what can you give an example of what yes. does that look like? Yes, yes, yes. So I think um, we probably should talk about um, maybe talk about dyslexia first okay. so that the approach might make more sense. So um, dyslexia itself is the most prevalent learning disability. It's one in five people have dyslexia. Um, and I really like, I actually pulled up 
from the from the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity website. Um, I think their definition of dyslexia is perfect, so I'll read it. Dyslexia is an unexpected difficulty in reading for an individual who has the intelligence to be a much better reader. It is most commonly due to a difficulty in phonological processing, which is the appreciation of the individual sounds of spoken language. Mm -hmm. and, it and it affects, meaning dif dyslexia affects, the ability of an individual to speak, read, spell, and often learn a second language. Okay. So the best way that I can summarize, like, what dyslexia actually looks like, um, obviously is over the course of time, it, it shows up differently, particularly um, depending on it, if a student has had support or not. But um, it's basically like for a non-dyslexic person, so I don't have dyslexia, right? Mm -hmm. I went through my typical schooling program. I was able to make sense of spoken language, written language, just almost like seamlessly. Mm -hmm. So I learned to read. I had no issues. I was able to hear words. I was able to recognize that words were broken into parts right. called syllables. I was able to recognize that each of those syllables was a complex pattern that was commonly found in the English language right. and each of those patterns were um, to be read or spelled in certain ways depending on the pattern and where it was in the sense of the word those were all things that came very naturally to me mm -hmm. what a gift yeah <laughs> and it's really complex it's incredibly complex right when you really pick it apart you're breaking things apart you're putting things together your eyes have to work with your ears have to work with your brain yep so yeah and for somebody with dyslexic or an otherwise struggling reader it's like the both it's it's a difficulty recognizing both the sounds in language and then the patterns of language mm-hmm and that comes into play by listening to the language. It comes into play, especially by reading the language and writing the language. And so um, that's why oftentimes, like, you'll hear one of the earliest signs of um, possible dyslexia is a difficulty to rhyme. Oh, okay. Sure, like the word games. The word games yeah. are rhyming, like hat, cat, map. Yep. Because what rhyming essentially is, is leaning on a pattern in a word, A-T says at, mm -hmm. and then isolating the beginning sound. Okay, that makes sense. So that's one of the first things, and that's just a spoken, um, that's right. just spoken language at that point. Right. But you'll see it as early as that. And then you'll see children either be having um, delayed language um, ability or um, difficulty learning the letter names, learning the letter sounds, because there's difficulty with that symbolism, the so, symbol to sound. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like that's almost a different or it could coexist, right? Because one part of it is the phonetic, the phonemes, not hearing, and, and then so that's like the auditory part mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. But then it could be an issue with discriminating the visual symbols, mm -hmm. right? Which is why, and I think that Orton Gillingham does this, and maybe you can tell me, like one of the important things is um, picking um, letters that are clearly distinguished from each other. Like uh -huh. we frequently hear P, B, Q, D when you think about a kid with dyslexia. Yep. Like flipping it, rotating it, all these things, but that seems yeah. like a more of a visual processing issue. Gosh, yeah. Which right? is another issue and probably a question for like a neuropsychologist. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. we, could go, we could go so deep. Yeah. And then, you know, on top of dyslexia, um, in Illinois, which is where we are, the, the category is specific learning disability, and there are other other identified learning disabilities, which it doesn't matter at the educational level, but dysgraphia yeah. is, um, you know, specific to writing. And then I think I've been saying this wrong for years. Dyscalculia. Yeah. yeah dyscalculia. I've heard people pronouncing it like four different ways lately, yeah. but they're the math one. I, I call it dyscalculia. 
but yeah, I think I say it wrong. I do that phonetically. That makes sense. Yeah, no, <laughs> so ironically, you. right? Yeah. So, yeah. um, so it's definitely helpful for kids who have learning disabilities. Not only dyslexia, and I'm thinking that dyslexia itself is probably 50 different beasts, right? Depending on how that processing is affected, yeah, and where that message is breaking down or having trouble connecting. Yes, but also it, I know that the approach is also recommended for kids with. Um, intellectual disability too. Okay. Um, You know, it's been proven to be effective. So I think that the approach is probably effective for multiple reasons. Uh Um, And would it be appropriate to teach um, kids who don't have a learning disability using the same types of approaches? So I do. So I would say that the the children, and I I still need to explain the multisensory approach, but um, to clarify, so I have, I would say, geez, about a good 80, 75% of the kids who I use Orton Gillingham with um, have dyslexia mm-hmm. or probably have dyslexia. And then the other percentage is sort of like that just tier two kid who is maybe super, super right brained mm-hmm. or, and, and you know, and they've kind of gravitated towards like whole word reading. Yes, I see that a lot. Can you explain right brain? Yeah, right brain, like just um, kids that, gosh, kids that are um, typically right brain people are more visual, they're more creative, they'll have a tendency to, those are the readers that are going to have a tendency to sort of memorize as a whole picture. Okay. They're going to, they're going to see a word as an image or Mm. picture Mm -hmm. as opposed to its, its individual units. Okay. And I don't know the statistics on this, but I would bet to believe most, I don't know, many, many people with dyslexia are right-brained. Okay. That's at least how it, you know. But so more, I would you say more systemizing, like um, more the, less rule-based, more visual, more seeing things as a whole? That's from my experience. Okay. I don't, I, I can't quote like the statistics on that, but yes. Visual learners respond really well high visual spatial yep. intelligence in terms of vak visual auditory yes right lower in coding um yes. yeah okay yes, All right. yes yes makes sense so the approach itself so when we talk about multi-sensory um approach we're really referring to making sure that learning experiences um tap into multiple means of sensory input Mm-hmm. So as opposed to like a classic classroom situation for any kind of reading, uh, any kind of learning, reading, math, or anything else, where it's a lot of auditory-based, right? it's very cumber, it's very, very verbal, auditory-based, multisensory brings in experiences for children to have tactile input, so things you can touch, um, visual input, things you can see, auditory input, things that you can hear. And a multi-sensory approach is layered. Mm-hmm. At any given point in time, I always say there's a minimum of two of those types of input going on, ideally three. And more. I'm guessing the reasoning is it's just you're hitting more modalities, so it's more likely to connect. And if it connects in multiple ways, mm-hmm. even better, right? Yep. Exactly. Because we're trying to strengthen those connections between the synapse, like you're trying to form as many connections as possible to retrieve that information or to use it fluently later. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So what would it look like? I can hear the auditory clearly, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I can see how we use visuals. Yep. There are ways you can, you know, break phonemes apart Mm -hmm. um, and manipulate them, I suppose, Mm -hmm. right? Like using, Mm -hmm. um, I'm picturing, uh, we say manipulatives sometimes Mm -hmm. or you know moving letters around like literally Uh changing them around Mm -hmm. are there any other techniques yeah so um well depending on the program that you use so there's many orton gillingham based programs um wilson is one um then there's different institutions you know you can get certified online through Orton Gillingham Academy. And like I said, I went through the Institute of Multisensory Education. Um, That particular framework um, leans a lot on the use of, there's like a sand tray that comes involved. There's something we call a bumpy screen. It looks like a, um, is it knitting Mm. or um, yeah, a like crochet. I can see it, the grid. Where you... A grid. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that has tactile input. So mm-hmm. for an example, and actually a lot of like 
elementary, early elementary teachers do a lot of really great multi-sensory things with the tactile piece. So, um, shaving cream, shaving cream, That's a fun one. you could do anything. There's times where, you know, I've gone to a student's house and, um, for some reason I didn't have my screen or whatever. And we've written on the carpet or on the wall, just okay. something with a texture. Sure. We have a velvet couch in couch. here as we're talking. And I know just kind of uh-huh. without thinking about it, <laughs> it's fun. It, you know, uh-huh. I think we all need different levels of input. Mm-hmm. What does it look like for older students? Do you use the same types of approaches? Um, it, it depends change? on where, I, well, it depends. Yeah. So if it's a student that hasn't had any remediation or any support and we have to sort of go back to the basics. So where the sand tray really comes in, in um, is typically when you're learning the sounds in isolation. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, I don't want to misquote, I think the Wilson early readers, it's called foundations program. Mm-hmm. I don't know for sure, but I'm sure they have some more tactile approach to learn the letter sounds. Um, and the same for the, the Orton Gillingham that I use. It's really when you're teaching the sound and symbol. Okay. So the program is structured or any kind of, um, Orton Gillingham is a systematic phonics based program. So what you're going to do is you're going to start by teaching the sounds of the symbols. Mm-hmm. So B says B, right? A right. says A. And you go through all those singular units of sound and then you start putting them together. So I really think that I'll interject here because one thing I wanted to hit on is when we talk about an instructional hierarchy, these are two of my favorite words, is it's the opposite of finding an activity to do with students from say teachers pay teachers because I love teachers pay teachers but having an instructional hierarchy is having a framework mm-hmm. that really um, is based on the four stages of learning okay and so the first stage is acquisition which is what you have just described mm-hmm. it's linking that meaning with that symbol that sound with that symbol it's just the basic knowledge of oh B says B mm-hmm. And then the next stage is fluency. Okay. And so mm-hmm. it feels like uh-huh. by practicing mm-hmm. this, you know, you have not only are you understanding these developmental phases, you also have a sequence in which they yes. are taught that is logical. And then the next stage is generalization, yep. like seeing how they work um, in a variety of settings or when put with another letter or how is it distinguished from D, you yep. know, how do I generalize this if it's written in a different font? if it's presented in the middle of a word versus the beginning of a word. Mm-hmm. And then um, at the end we get to um, adaptation. But what I, I think what makes it so effective is that you not only have that part in place, acquisition, fluency practice, getting to a level of mastery, generalization, it's also the sequence in which these are taught is given, like there's a lot of thought that goes Serious into thought. how you present mm-hmm. the letters in which order. You do not start with, mm-hmm. this is from my understanding, you don't start with A. No. It, depend, and I, it depends on the program. So I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of the sequence that's laid out from um, Institute of Multisensory Education. Mm-hmm. So, And I've had great success with my kids because they use their sequence is the first letters are C-O-A-D. Mm-hmm. So you teach C says K, O says A, A says A, D says D, and the sequence is built on the formation of letters. Right. So, and we call it magic C. Because if you draw a C, C, you can make an O. Then you can complete the circle and make an O. You can make an A. And then you can add a line to make an A. So it's teaching writing in conjunction with the sound. Correct. Cool. And um, one of the neatest things that I have found, and I've sort of adapted from the, um, this, particular institution's method for Orton Gillingham is that um, for some of my older readers that are still reversing, like I'll have third and fourth graders that come to me still reversing their B's and D's. Yeah. And while I don't think letter reversals are like the end all be all, a lot of my kids do kind of feel a sense of shame about it. Well, by third, I, I mean, I don't know what the general guideline is, but I do have parents who will ask me, like, they're in first grade, they're still writing their letters and numbers backwards, and in first grade, I'm like, I wouldn't worry yet. And you shouldn't, but right. by, but after first grade, I can even justify giving some wiggle room, like, halfway through second grade, because we know For kids develop visually, a different... Sure. Visually first, similar. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
But one of my favorite strategies that I do using the COAD structure, or sequence rather, is I, I name it and I call it the top four. So I, te I teach any, any kid who's got a letter reversal or just kind of handwriting instability. I'll teach them the COAD. We go through the whole sequence of formation. We use the multi-sensory you know, approach to it. But then we sort of name those four letters the top four. Okay. And this helps with generalization when they're reading and writing. Yes, it does. Categorizing things helps Categorizing a lot with things. generalization. And so we'll call it the top four, and I say, okay, anytime you look at a letter B or D, or you want to write a letter B or D, you think about that letter C. If we know, if we see a C, or if we write a C, we know it's a D. Yeah, they belong to a family. They belong to a family, and that sure. has, I found, has been tremendously helpful at getting kids to correct. Yep, that makes sense. Because you think of the, you know, if you're, if you haven't gone through this training, you're giving it a lot of thought. The the usual pattern I see, you know, I can think of when my kids were in preschool, and it wasn't an instructional program. It was more about socialization. Is Every week we're going to learn a letter, we're going to do letter A, then we're going to do letter B, then we're going to do letter C. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard, I think, to learn 26 letters without linking their relationship to each other or how they're similar. Yes. Right? Um, and another approach, um, I don't know much about, there are other programs like Linda Mood Bell, for mm -hmm. example, where it's based more on how the word is pronounced and someone can correct me if I'm wrong but there's like you know words that start with a closed syllable uh -huh. or uh -huh. you know the way that the word is formed in the mouth might be another way to chunk these yep. groups together yep I do that I pull so I don't use the linamute I think it's the seeing stars that you're referring to um but I pull, I've read enough about, there's lip, there's like a LIPS program yep. as well. That's the one I'm thinking of. Okay. And that's really probably an effective approach for some, some kids who have difficulty with discrimination mm -hmm. of sounds, right? So mm -hmm. um, there are different programs that are more specialized or a mm -hmm. different fit for those reasons. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring that in. Um, so I have a lot of kids who have difficulty with E and I. So oh, short yeah. E is F short vowels. and I. So I, I, I'm sure a number of Orton-Gillingham-based programs do it, but I pull in um, like visual cues. So we itch our nose yeah. for I. And then I've adapted and I actually, the Institute tells you to kind of like grab the sides of your mouth for E and say eh. But I find that my students need to feel it. So mm -hmm. we talk about, you know, where do you feel it? And we, for the letter E, we feel it deep down in our throat, so we touch our throat. That seems to help. Shorty is the hardest one. It is. It is the it's hardest a stinker, man. one. I know. <laughs> I remember having a similar visual when I was teaching yeah. middle school. So, yeah, short E sound is not going to, yeah, um, long vowel sounds first make sense because the letters sound like their name. I don't know. When I was teaching it's reading, short vowel. Short vowel first. Yeah, short vowels was recommended. Yeah, cause, because it, I mean, we do the CVC words. So for non-educators, consonant, vowel consonant, your basic cat, dog, you know, mm -hmm. boy is not an example because mm -hmm. it's a oi sound. But when you have the, um, you know, consonant, vowel consonant, you're right. You're doing short vowel sounds. Phonetically, it's easier to identify a long vowel because it sounds like what it looks like. So yeah. it's com you can see, I guess, is yeah. my point. Like, this is complicated stuff. Well, and CBC is the most... CBC uh, makes up what we call closed syllables mm -hmm. and closed syllables, which is a CBC word. So that's a consonant, a short vowel, and a consonant. So closed syllable is a syllable that ends in a consonant, and the vowel is short. It's basically CBC words for teachers, and that is the most common syllable type. Yeah. So by teaching yeah. short vowels first... Right we're setting everybody up for success. Right, because even longer words are made of those components. So it's really teaching like one building block yep. of language at a time and kind of scaling up from there. Exactly. Blending those together or using the closed syllables, mm -hmm. CVC. So what does it look like if you get a middle school student, for example, or like upper elementary student who's still really, really struggling with reading? Like, so a student who probably hasn't had the remediation? Probably not. And, you know, I think I'll mention really quickly, too, it's interesting that um, part of the law for um, specific learning disability would mention, like, that it's not due to a lack of appropriate instruction, which is just, to me, craziness, because <laughs> we don't have instruction police walking through classrooms, which is kind of unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to even know, like, was a student exposed to appropriate 
instruction mm-hmm. because even being in a special ed program like we talked about doesn't ensure that's right. appropriate instruction well right and what is appropriate so i mean i'll go out on a ledge and say that this method is what's appropriate and we know that schools are just now starting to dip their toe into yeah certifying their teachers at the very least training their teachers yeah so what do you see that looks like if you get a parent who's panicked or the Mm -hmm. school says you know this one's really behind and you start digging into what's going on with an older kid yeah what does that kind of look like so first I would say that um anecdotally for me I would say for kids who have been left unsupported for, for dyslexic readers or struggling readers that have been left unsupported beyond third grade, it starts even as soon as third grade. Um, a lot of kids internalize that. Mm, yeah. Low self-esteem, shame. Um, maybe acting out acting in some out. cases, maybe shutting down. Acting out, shutting down. Hiding. Avoidance. Yep. Exactly. So while I'm a believer of, you know, letting a child develop, I also can see, you know, being in the trenches that there's a great call for getting to children before they get to that point. Mm-hmm. By middle schoolers, um, in terms of the instruction, it depends. I mean, I always start with a baseline assessment. I have to know. I use the WIST. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the spelling test. I, word identification and spelling tests to find out what particular patterns and syllable types we still need to know. I've used a similar one just from like words their way. Great. Right? Like do they, can they put uh, like a, a affix on the word, like a prefix? Like do they, exactly. are they skilled with like some of the most common prefixes? Exactly. And then how it would change like putting a double letter in yeah. the middle of the word or adding ED and do they, is that similar? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, it, I mean, it, it kind of depends. So if a kid has not had support, and I'll have middle schoolers who will come to me, maybe even undiagnosed, and their phonics ability is in the second grade level, that's a conversation. It's a conversation with the family. It's a conversation with the student to say, like, what is your goal for yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you able to read what you want to read? And are you able to write what you want to write? It's an issue of functioning. So there's a whole boatload of like adaptation that I take to my program. So I'm not going to use like a center a for right. a 12 year old and make them feel especially an like, angsty 12 year old. <laughs> make <laughs> them throw feel it like at they're you. Six. Right. Right. So I adapt the materials that I use. Um, I will always tell them we got to review some of these basics. Mm-hmm. Usually there's still instability with short vowels. They usually have the consonants B's and D's may or may not be there, but it really doesn't matter at that point. But there's still instability with like recognition of um, short vowels. So I always start there teaching those systematically. And I tell them, I know that this seems so simplistic. I promise you. It's not. Give me two weeks (laughs) to lay down this foundation and then we'll. Well, how about, I'm sorry, but how about the schwa? Okay. I'm like, if you, if, if anybody hasn't heard of the schwa, I, this had not, I guess we did cover it in college, which tells you how much I remember from my basic reading courses, but I was teaching English learners and we're spelling pencil. You know, I mean, there's certain words where you're spelling this and you can't tell which short vowel Uh to write down in pencil. It's a schwa. It's an upside down E. It's a great word, but right. It's, it's actually not simplistic. But they may interpret it that way because they feel like they are just behind Mm -hmm. on everything. Well, and I think you associate learning letter sa- learning singular letter sounds as something that you do in first grade, right. kindergarten, first grade. So there's just that association. And is there unlearning that needs to be done sometimes? <clears throat> Have you seen bad habits develop? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So um, whole word reading is one of them. Yes. Um, you'll get students that are just, there's tons of substitution. So um, for in like educator teacher language, it's like, um, that um, absence of word attack strategy. Oh yeah, they just guess the they word based it. on the first letter. Exactly. And I've seen teachers teach that as a strategy nope. during a reading aloud. You know, let's yeah. look at the picture. Yeah. What do you think this might say? There's yeah. a bear and a boy in yeah. the picture. No, what needs to be happening is explicit teaching of the syllable types. Mm-hmm. So there's one, two, see, 
ER6. Um, closed syllable, there's L-E ending syllable. That's like um, at the word, at the end of the word table, bowl. Mm-hmm. There's bowl, zol, full, goal, that kind of thing. There's open syllables. That's where a syllable ends in a vowel, and then the vowel says its name, such mm-hmm. as in the word open. The first syllable is O. O says O. Um, there's vowel teams. So a lot of my older kids will have, they won't know their vowel teams. Right. They can hear the sound in O-W says ow, but they don't recognize it readily in a word. Right. And they can't spell it. Well, it's amazing that I've learned a lot through teaching. Yeah. Really. Like then been like, oh my gosh, there's a rule. Like I, yeah. I didn't have any issues with the processing. So I was able to just kind of pick up on things organically. And I think a lot of students are able to do that. Mm-hmm. But then I think that if it's a case, I'm going to hypothesize here and, and let me know if you agree or if you see more to it. If it's just a lack of being taught explicitly, mm-hmm. like not having those rules pointed out, then I would think it would come pretty quickly. Like, mm-hmm. this is vowel teens. Oh, and it'll fill in a few gaps where they had made some errors mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. but it's helpful knowledge, and then they can generalize, and maybe they overgeneralize at first, yep. but then it gets better. But for a student who has a, a real issue with processing or a true dyslexia or learning disability, it's going to take time and mm-hmm. more practice mm-hmm. than to mm-hmm. do that. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Is that kind of the... Yes. The yeah. gist of it? Yeah. I mean, gosh, I'm having a difficult time recalling the exact number, but it's like somebody without a non-dyslexic brain, something like a non-dyslexic brain maybe needs to see something two to three times, okay. whereas somebody with a learning disability, yep. dyslexia might need to see it as many as 10, 20, right. 30, 40 times. It's going to be the fluency part and then the generalization part, depending on that person's brain. And that's why I also went to a conference where there was somebody talking about using Orton-Gillingham methods for kids with intellectual disability. And they were teaching kids in their late teens who had never had explicit reading instruction. It was kind of like that expectation had gone. The, the expectation was just kind of like, this is a kid who will never be an independent reader. And it was because of a lack of progress. So, you know, looking at when we progress monitor, which is, by the way, an entirely different podcast on how we see if kids are making progress. You know, if you're not seeing a big payoff, mm-hmm. then it could be like, well, this approach isn't working. This strategy isn't working. Let's shift to working on a different skill. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting that if you... If you can have, I guess, good data mm-hmm. and better expectations of like, it will work, but it means we have to persevere for longer. Mm-hmm. It can work, but it's going to take a lot longer than mm-hmm. it will for somebody without this disability. Yeah. So um, I think it's really helpful to be able to convey that to kids as like, you're not the only one. Like, you know, it, this is going to take more practice mm-hmm. for you to get over this skill too, depending on the student. Some are pretty self-aware for some that might, you know, just be really detrimental yeah I think you asked about the older students it's especially important with my older kids that I show them progress yes so I do speak I don't speak in grade level level terms with my kids who are grossly behind because Mm -hmm. I'm obviously but as my students close the gap Mm -hmm. and they're getting closer and now maybe they're just a year behind I will start to say you have grown two grade levels in six months or whatever right. the statistic might be. Um, and that, especially with like my high schoolers. So I have some high schoolers who come to me for like fluency support. Right. And they're really they just dyslexic and then sure. they need like a review of the basics. Yep. Um, for those kids, they feel that like motivation by knowing that they've like, they're crushing it. Yeah. And the self-monitoring piece is really important too. So if they can graph that last time they were reading... 90 words per minute mm-hmm. and now they're up to 105 and they can see mm-hmm. that progress the progress is really important I think it's interesting too and um for anybody hearing this when we're reporting on somebody's reading ability mm-hmm. we have so many different uh reading scales and ways of reporting so there's the Fontes and Pinnell like yeah. you know and then there's like when we do map testing there's writ scores, and then there's oral reading fluency, which doesn't tell the whole story, and there's um, Lexile, right? Yep. And so you can look up all of these different things and kind of equate them online. Um, but I think that in some cases it's a good thing to pick data mm-hmm. to show a kid, mm-hmm. like you know, you were really making progress. 
Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk about is it's a little confusing to me. Um, and maybe it's, I think that our attitude about these things changes. So when I was going to, um, school, I had my reading classes and they were doing whole language Mm -hmm. instruction. So Mm -hmm. it was a lot of, I brought up language experience approach. Um, it was a lot of like immersing kids in literature, Mm -hmm. like getting them to love literature, Mm -hmm. like that reading shouldn't be a scientific process that we're sucking the fun out of it. Um, and that, that is what had, I guess, a negative effect on reading in the past. Mm -hmm. And they were just starting to have this argument about whole language versus direct instruction, Mm -hmm. you know, phonics instruction. As a child, I remember being in first grade and I was an early reader. Like Mm -hmm. I was, I really needed some stimulation. I was an only child back then and there was no internet. We lived in the middle of nowhere. So I learned to read really early. But I remember filling out like the phonics uh, workbooks all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we had like some intensive phonics instruction. But by the time I hit the classrooms, that wasn't a piece of it. We had readers. We had, you know, reading books with comprehension questions in the back. Mm -hmm. um, And maybe some vocabulary was picked out, but they were not having us teach. And this was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. They were not having us teach in this, um, you know, phonics based Mm -hmm. way at all. Um, And so I think that that's going to be an ongoing discussion because I'm still hearing pushback on both sides. You know, why aren't we doing, why aren't we looking more at the direct instruction phonics based? Why aren't teachers at least getting some training in this? Because it would be beneficial to all students. Um, What do you, what do you make of this? Have you heard arguments on either side? So what's kind of, what's your take? I mean, I I think, um, I think whole language is, is great until it isn't. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, for maybe at least half, maybe the majority of the population, it's fine, fine. And then for some, it's fine enough. <laughs> right. I think that it would be detrimental for 20% of kids. Right. So that makes sense. Because I think I learned to read by being read to and following along and like noting Mm -hmm. the patterns, which is probably a lot of kids just naturally do that. And then, um, the, but the rules, you know, those rules, they're not always explicit and they could be really helpful. I think of, um, the other thing that's embarrassing (laughs) to me as a reader and kind of funny is, um, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have cable TV. So when I would read words and pronounce them phonetically, I still mispronounce words to this day because I'm like, I've you know, when I read the Harry Potter books, mm-hmm. like you read, like, I was like, it's Hermione. That's what I thought it was. And it's like, no, it's a Greek root. <laughs> but uh, I'm like, you know, we can make kids more confident readers, I think, even by teaching the etiology of yeah, words, which right. I may have mispronounced that, by the way, too, that's because okay. these don't pop up in that's conversation. <laughs> but I'm like, I just always see a benefit to hitting kind of the um, the structured and rule-based part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of us did uh, the cafe curriculum and the daily five when I was teaching. Uh-huh, and I that's... like the daily five. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. I, I think as a, a gen ed teacher, you're kind of hitting a lot of the best of mm-hmm. practices, right? As like a tier one, which is the best for everybody, but some kids need more yep. type of a model. Yeah. If I could go back into the classroom um, as a gen ed teacher, I would, use, I would probably use something like the daily five and then I would... I haven't, gosh, I haven't done it in like 10 years, so I can't remember all the different, um, what the five are, but, um, for one of those, it would be with me getting explicit phonics instruction, not for all of the kids, but for the kids who I know need it. Well, that's the nice part of it is you can design it where, when kids are fluent and then you can work on inferring or you can work on, you know, some more advanced skills. Um, there's word work involved, which, you know, is sorting words into categories. That's right. I have words their way on my shelf. I love that program yeah um, and like I'd promote that one too but even at like the um there's some talk right now about policy about making sure that teachers have training in this because this one's evidence-based hmm. you yeah. know um there should be at least some familiarity I, th- I feel with breaking things down into some sort of an instructional hierarchy of having mm-hmm. a plan because otherwise what happens is what if you only end up teaching 18 of the 26 <laughs> letters so yeah. um I'm I guess I'm promoting at least that teachers have some awareness of this as an approach. And even if they're not deeply trained in it, Mm -hmm. because that's a caution, Mm -hmm. that they would be knowing a little better how to assess their own teaching and when to refer out that 20% to get more intensive. Yep. 
that's spot on because we know there's never going to be enough time in the day or the curriculum to be able to so so Wilson outlined the Wilson method is another Orton Gillingham based method um, outlines I think at well their 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 full block is 90 minutes so ideally a severely dyslexic child could be getting five days a week 90 minutes Um, but at minimum we want two days a week for that full block yeah, it's a long time. It's a long time. And a lot of these kids will have other issues as well, a lot of coexisting things on sensory. Really, you know, if one if one area is affected, often it's multiple. So I've heard a lot of families saying, like, well, we don't know. Like, should we be going to OT? Should we do the reading instruction? At high school, it can be we already have an algebra mm-hmm. person. We already have a therapist working with our child because mm-hmm. of their, like, negative self-talk at this point. Um, so they're hard decisions for families to make. And then I think the schools, too, are challenged to provide the level of service, um, even with an IEP that we recognize. Um, And that's where I'm like, I'll plug Kristen here, too, because if you have questions about getting external supports for your child, um, even if they are getting them at school, like, you need to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about, because I don't. (laughs) Not on this. Like, I know where to point you, and I know some of the questions to ask, but I think that that's where being really specialized in an area is so helpful. Um, so let's kind of uh, summarize. I sure. usually like to do like the, the three main takeaways, I suppose, mm-hmm. of this. Yeah. So I think um, I think I'd like to start with something that we actually haven't touched on yet is that um, while I am very passionate about teaching struggling readers to read in my um, and I and I advocate for that through using, highly effective programs to yield outcomes and get kids succeeding sooner. Um, I don't believe somebody's value and worth is contingent on their ability to read. You know, there are there yeah. are many acceptable ways to go about learning information and going about your way in the world. It's about function. It's you said about that earlier. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great point. Yeah. So I'm a, I'd like to plug um, Ben, uh, a book by Ben Foss. It's the... Um, dyslexia empowerment plan he has dyslexia and has written a book oh the irony and um he talks about the importance to get intervention to get a student up to a certain point okay so um and then after that we compensate so i tell all of my students we're learning to eye read so reading with our eyes but reading with our ears or otherwise known as auditory um, intake is just as valuable. So we're going to get your ear reading skills up to a point that functions for you and then beyond that. Oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, that makes so much sense because if you're always remediating too, Mm -hmm. then kids never get to do anything they're good at. No, 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 exactly. And then at some point now enough is enough and now we're investing in your strengths. Yeah. Yep. It's a lot more balanced. Yeah. Good point. So I would say that, um, I still would say that, you know, the most sensitive time to intervene is like grades one and two. Mm-hmm. So be on the look for parents and teachers, be on the lookout for some of the, those flags that we talked about earlier. If you're unsure if something is a flag, you, you want to look for a pattern of those instances and you want to see if certain flags are kind of popping up in multiple situations. Um, so both maybe in reading and writing and spoken language. Um, and then reach out to a specialist. So um, teachers are great resources, but I think teachers would even know that sometimes they need to refer out. General tutors are wonderful, but I think you really, really want to talk to somebody who knows dyslexia, knows learning disability. You can go to Casey, you can go to educational therapist, learning specialist, um, to ask some of those those questions. You could, get a, you could also get an evaluation through a neuropsychologist would be very informative as well, mm-hmm. privately or through the school district. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And then I would say um, just par- questions that I've been hearing a lot of lately are like, who am I look? Am I looking for Orton Gillingham? Am I looking for somebody who uses Slant or Wilson or Linda Mubell and Honestly, I think the most important thing is that you find somebody who's certified mm. and who really, really knows dyslexia. So there's a lot of Wilson tutors out there. There's a lot of people that are popping up with trainings and 
think you really want to um, ask for referral sources so you can talk to other families because we want somebody who knows dyslexia well and somebody who's results oriented because you're spending a lot of time and a lot of money to get the service um, and you want to make sure that it's quality and yields outcomes. Right. So the experience and the specialty and also I would say the level of training because it can vary. Mm -hmm. Um, You can do one training I'll just throw that out really quickly. You could do one training and be like level one certified. It's really an introduction or you could go much, much deeper into it. But I think that also having experience with your type of issue is, mm-hmm. is equally important. Not equally, but also a huge, huge consideration. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm kind of a crazy person. I'm actually working on a double certification. So I'm getting certified in Wilson too. Okay. Because good. I think that there's gaps in both right. the Orton and the Wilson. So I'm finding that will make you pretty well qualified, meld, I would think. Going to meld those together. Yep. Service more students. So. And then the last point, yes. I, w- I guess I would go to like the classroom model or the reading instruction everyone receives, and I probably missed something. Was there anything else you had on your your list? What was the question? I'm trying to bring it to the three points. It usually turns into six um, at the end, but... Yeah, the main takeaways. I would say um, in terms of the classroom instruction, too, if you're hearing your child is doing really, really well, mm-hmm. Kristen's already bought, brought up like what red flags you might see, that gut feeling that you might have. Um, think of the homework that comes home. Like, mm-hmm. just is it meaningful, I guess, in helping kids um, recognize the rules, patterns, generalize, and expand mm-hmm. on it in some way? Mm-hmm. Um, does it look balanced? Um, if you're a teacher, you know, and you don't feel like you have a good resource to go to, I think it's kind of on you to find some sort of a, a structure and hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I think we're always in trouble when we're pulling one activity at a time or I love this story so I'll teach it. That's great, but it needs to be supplemented with something very systematic mm-hmm. um, and watch uh, watch that your students are making progress through some sort of sequence or mm-hmm. hierarchy. Yep. Um, and if you don't have it, you know, then advocate for it talk to an administrator and I do think it's coming so that's good yeah yeah well I think that's all that I have yeah thank Thank, you thanks so much um again Kristen's website is the learning specialist llc.com and she can help you out you can contact her there if you have questions for me you can go to um, reorientedadvocacy.com and that's it thanks